Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman. I'm the Dean and Professor at the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for Pharmacotherapy. Today we're talking with Dr. Candace Garwood about her paper entitled Anticoagulation Bridge Therapy in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, Recent Updates Providing a Rebalance of Risk and Benefit. Dr. Garwood is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, Wayne State University. She also serves on the editorial board uh, of pharmacotherapy, and her areas of expertise include geriatrics and anticoagulation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Garwood. Thank you for having me um, talk about updates in anticoagulation bridge therapy today. Great. I was really intrigued by your paper. Uh, could you give us sort of a brief overview of the problem that you reviewed in, in the paper? Yeah. So in 2011, we wrote a clinical update um, on the controversies surrounding anticoagulation bridge therapy for patients who have atrial fibrillation, because that's a big population of anticoagulated patients. Um, but a lot has changed since then. And there are also new direct oral anticoagulants that have become available in the United States since that time as well. Um, but not all patients are good candidates for these therapies. There are a lot of contraindications to their use. And so um, a lot of patients continue to remain anticoagulated using warfarin. And then bridge therapy presents a clinical dilemma um, for patients who are anticoagulated with warfarin who may be going for a procedure. Um, so since 2011, um, there have been a lot of updates in major international guidelines, um, and probably even more significantly, there have been um, some new trials that have been published, um, and the first of uh, a prospective trial on bridging um, patients for peri-procedural management uh, who have atrial fibrillation. Um, so we felt like really our paper from 2011 required some refreshing and some updates with that new evidence. Um, and there's a new consensus document from the American College of Cardiology that has also been released very recently um, addressing paraprocedural management of anticoagulation for patients with AFib. So with the, the new direct-acting oral anticoagulants, there is no need for a bridge? Um, yeah, pretty much I think that the uh, new direct oral anticoagulants might lessen the use of um, vitamin K antagonists or warfarin, um, and therefore also lessen, you know, the need for bridge therapy um, for those patients who may be converted to DOAX, you know, because they have rapid onset and rapid offset of action, it really eliminates the need to bridge those patients who are on DOAX. But um, I think for those patients who remain on vitamin K antagonists, you know, the question still remains, do we bridge these patients or not? Um, I think the likelihood of bridge therapy will decrease based on the present evidence and emerging evidence that we're going to talk about. So in other words, um, there will probably always be some patients that require warfarin therapy and, and therefore the need to bridge. Yeah, I don't see warfarin going away. Maybe its use is going to decline, but there are a lot of patients that have a need to remain on warfarin because of a contraindication or a lack of affordability with one of these um, new DOAC agents. Thanks. So has, has any evidence emerged over the past uh, five to six years that either 
sort of stood out the most or has the greatest potential to influence clinical practice now? Yeah, there are, um, well, there are several emerging pieces of evidence, but I think there are two significant ones um, that I'll talk about. One is the Orbit AFib study, which was a large registry of patients with AFib. So it was a, a big cohort. Um, and then in 2015, a sub-study of that registry was published. And in the sub-study, it looked at patients who had to interrupt their oral, oral anticoagulant, which was um, most often warfarin. And um, in this analysis, we saw no difference in thromboembolic events. Um, between the cohort of patients that was not bridged for procedure compared to those patients who were bridged. Um, and we also saw significantly higher rates of major bleeding. Shortly after the release of Orbit AF came the BRIDGE study, which was the first prospective multicentered randomized controlled trial that evaluated perioperative bridging um, that we uh, now look to as probably our key source of evidence for how to manage these patients. Um, and so it was, the findings of the BRIDGE study were quite similar to those of Orbit AF. There was no difference in thromboembolic event rates for those who are BRIDGE compared to those who were not BRIDGE, but we found there was a significantly higher risk of bleeding in those patients who were BRIDGE. So ultimately, it looks like for many patients with atrial fibrillation, bridging um, may not confer a benefit but provides risk to the patient. So if I'm determining whether to actually bridge a patient today in my practice based on their stroke risk, um, do you use CHAD or CHAD's VASC? And, and if you could, how do you incorporate the scores that assess bleeding risk in okay. making that, those yeah, decisions? Yeah, these are good questions. So I'll first address the thrombosis risk assessment tools, the CHAD yeah. and CHAD's VASC. So, um, these tools are, were really developed to determine the risk of stroke per patient with AFib who's not receiving anticoagulation and then um, often are used to apply to a patient to determine whether or not you would want to anticoagulate that patient. Um, but because they're simple and easy to use, um, you, they are often used to describe the population of patients with AFib in trials. So the CHADS-2 score has been um, used in the last two editions of the CHESS guidelines also to guide recommendations for bridging strategy. Um, and it was uh, the score that was used to describe the population of patients in observ uh, observational trials that we have, as well as the bridge trial, which was the prospective um, periprocedural bridging study that I just talked about. Um, so that's the risk score that we have the most um, familiarity with and most evidence around using. Um, but many clinicians are using CHADS2-VASC in practice today. Um, and so in our paper, we included CHADS2-VASC um, as uh, you know, consideration as well. But for simplicity and alignment with the evidence that we currently have, um, I think it's, it's suitable to use CHADS2 just to sort of stratify the patients to help with that clinical decision-making process. Um, that being said, probably fewer patients with AFib weren't bridging compared with past approaches. And really, it's only the highest-risk AFib patients where we're likely to even consider bridging them um, based on the outcomes of Orba AF and bridge. 
Um, so CHADS-2 score is probably adequate to describe those patients who are at the highest risk for thrombosis based on um, those clinical trials. Um, to address your second question, which is bleeding risk scores, there are several tools that are available um, to estimate bleeding risk, although none of them have really been designed or validated specifically for bridge therapy. Um, but in our paper, we discussed the HasBlood tool and the bleed map tool. Um, it's important to note, I think, that that chronic anticoagulation shouldn't be withheld um, for a patient based on these bleeding tool scores. Um, but really, I think they're useful to help identify a patient's bleeding risk factors and then to think about how you might mitigate that bleeding risk for a patient. Um, so I think that bridging um, is one of those things that confers a bleeding risk. and so. Um, you know, using these bleeding risk tools, you could say, well, how high um, is my patient's bleed risk? And then do I want to add additional bleeding risk, um, giving them bridge therapy? Um, but what these tools don't really um, include is the surgical bleeding risk, which is important if you're talking about periprocedural bridging. Uh, so I think they add to some clinical decision-making um, and help to really just sort out some of the factors that are involved in the complex decisions that go into bridging a patient for, uh, with anticoagulation. Great. So can you lay out for us who, who definitely requires anticoagulation bridging, who shouldn't be bridged, and so who, who falls sort of in the middle in the gray area? Okay. Well, um, first, I'll respond to this question by saying that I'm going to be speaking about patients with AFib who are taking warfarin. Um, so I think with that population, the first consideration um, to take into account is um, whether that patient's uh, anticoagulation needs to be interrupted. Um, so if it doesn't need to be interrupted, then we're not going to consider bridging. Um, also, I think you would want to take into uh, consideration that they're on warfarin. So if they're on a DOAC, as we've talked about earlier, you, you would just stop the DOAC um, in time for the procedure and then reinitiate. Those patients don't need to be bridged. So I think that those, that's pretty clear. As far as who needs to have their warfarin interrupted, um, you know, I think that we have growing evidence that continuation of warfarin through certain procedures um, is uh, quite reasonable, especially like some dermatologic procedures like cataract removal, dental extractions. There's emerging evidence surrounding um, radiofrequency of AFib um, and cardiac device placement that it may potentially be safer to perform those procedures while the patient is anticoagulated rather than withdrawing um, anticoagulation. And so I think that it's becoming increasingly clear bridging wouldn't be used in those patients rather continue anticoagulation. So that leads us to discuss patients who have AFib that are on warfarin undergoing a procedure where anticoagulation must be stopped because of surgical bleeding risk. Um, and so that's where I think bridging does become a consideration um, based on a lot of the evidence that we've kind of talked about and um, based on uh, the discussion in our paper. I think it's um, increasingly clear that patients who are at low risk or stroke, meaning they have low or CHAD scores, um, they shouldn't be bridged because there's more um, potential for harm than there is benefit. 
Um, I think that the gray area potentially remains in those patients who have high CHADS 2 scores, so those patients whose scores are 5 or 6. And I think that this sort of remains a gray area really because these patients were underrepresented in the BRIDGE trial. The BRIDGE trial, the, the CHAD score on average was in the neighborhood of two to three. And so for um, patients who you know, had these high BRIDGE or high CHAD two scores, I think that um, you know, we just don't have as much of an evidence base to say exactly what to do. Um, I think in particular patients who have had maybe a more remote history of stroke um, beyond three months, but um, they have had stroke in the past, it's not very clear as to how to manage those patients. Um, patients who had a stroke recently in the last three months, they were excluded from the BRIDGE study, and I think for those patients you would probably um, defer procedure if possible or bridge them if they were to need to go undergo procedure. Um, as far as other populations go outside of AFib, I think that um, for patients with mechanical heart valves, those patients um, we've historically kind of thought of as candidates for bridging, in particular if that mechanical heart valve is in the mitral position. Um, I think we're awaiting results from randomized controlled trials for bridging those patients with mechanical heart valves. Um, I think the more modern mechanical heart valves probably have a less thrombogenic risk than some of the evidence we have with older mechanical heart valves. So I think that that's a group of patients where, you know, hopefully there's some more answers on the horizon. Um, I think also there's no evidence really to support bridging to initiate warfarin in a patient with AFib or uh, bridge a patient with an isolated subtherapeutic INR. So if we extrapolate what we know from the bridge study, um, you could expect a shorter window of time where anticoagulation was below the therapeutic range for those patients. And so um, there may be exceptions, though, if, you know, if a patient has a known intracardiac thrombus, I think that that changes that scenario. But in general, those patients um, for initiation and subtherapeutic INR management likely don't need to be bridged. Um, and then we didn't really discuss uh, the indication of acute VT or history of VTE in our paper. These patients are a whole different population when considering bridge therapy. And depending on um, their event history, you may or may not consider bridging for those patients. Great. So last question. What new evidence can we look forward to over the next few years, um, probably in ongoing trials, and how, how do you think it will influence the use of anticoagulation bridge? Yeah, you know, I think that the um, study that we're anticipating results from is the periop study, and that study is wrapping up, so should hopefully have that evidence available in the near future. Um, the periop study is a study that uh, is, uh, the purpose is to determine the effectiweness and safety of low molecular weight heparin um, perioperatively uh, for patients who have mechanical heart valves or AFib or a flutter. And so there's a placebo arm for bridging and there is an active low molecular weight heparin arm for bridging, so somewhat similar in design to the BRIDGE trial, which looked at patients with AFib only. Um, so I think that the findings of this study will add a whole other population, um, those with mechanical heart valves, to the randomized controlled trial evidence that we've gained with the BRIDGE trial. 
Well, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Garwood, and congratulations on your paper in pharmacotherapy. Yeah, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.